And this is God's word. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For the same way, uh, they pers- uh, for, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus reads God's word. What if I told you that to understand your place in the world is to understand uh, your place before a holy God? Uh, What if I told you that uh, how you view and how you understand who God is inevitably will inform how you view the world and how the world views you? Uh, This kind of question cuts straight to Jesus's point of not just the Beatitudes, but the entire Sermon on the Mount. Because what we shall see by the end of this sermon uh, today, tonight, and come January, when we wrap up the Beatitudes, this section, uh, your role, uh, you'll see that your role and your uh, place as a Christian in the world is a difficult truth to handle for some. Uh, But it is still God's truth nonetheless. Uh, The title of this sermon is very straightforward. Uh, It's simple because I think if you look at it, Jesus alliterates it nicely for us. Uh, The title of this sermon is Purity, Peacemaking, and Persecution. Purity, Peacemaking, and persecution. Um, All three of these have to do with how we view God and subsequently how the world around us view us, view Christians, view the church. And so tonight I endeavor to show you that Jesus is once again demanding your allegiance. Uh, These blessings, these beatitudes demand you to stake a claim either on God's side or on the world's side. And there is no in-between. There is no straddling the fence. Because for Jesus, to be pure is to be wholeheartedly, undividedly devoted to one thing, or in his case, one person. Um, To be a peacemaker is to be reflective of the character and the role of the mediator, the son of man and holy God. And to be persecuted is to be hounded uh, by the other camp, uh, known as the world, because of not just what you stand for, but who you represent. 
And so tonight we move away from the, the personal, the interior, the introspective to the setting of the world. Uh, that to be Christian, one can never be in some ivory tower of knowledge or uh, personal bubble or Christian huddle. But rather, to be Christian is to be a light, uh, to be a herald, uh, to be a beacon of truth and mercy in said fallen world. And it is in this context does the Christian operate. We live in a world for a king who demands our lives to be completely antithetical to said world. Thus, this antithetical existence prompts a response from said world and that is the tension that Christians live in. You have competing voices echoing in your mind day in and day out. And these Beatitudes help orient us uh, to, to sift through which voices to listen to. And I'd hope as Jesus demands and as your leaders do, I hope you would hear the voice of God through his word. You are called to be pure. You are called to be a peacemaker. And yes, you are called to be persecuted for the king's sake. Because as we all know, uh, this king, our king, was persecuted for us first. Uh, so let us walk through these final three beatitudes and reach the height, the climax, the apex of these blessings. And next week we'll wrap up with the, the denouement, the resolution, so to speak. Um, of Christ's sermon introduction. And then through that, it will open us up th into the rest of Jesus's uh, magnum opus, his sermon of sermons. But first, here are these final three blessed attitudes that characterize the Christian. And notice Christ's outward focus. Christ describes Three postures of the Christian who lives in a fallen, antagonistic world, but is not of it. Three postures of the Christian that lives in a fallen and antagonistic world, but is not of that world. Uh, the first is the posture of purity. The posture of purity in verse 8. And second is the posture of peacemaking. The posture of peacemaking. And lastly is the posture of persecution. The posture of persecution in verse 10, 11, and 12. But for tonight, we'll just look at verse 10. So the first posture, the posture of purity. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says, foul hearts makes for dim eyes. Uh, today, purity has become a disregarded, misrepresented, misapplied virtue that even in the church, it has become difficult to define. Uh, when the word purity is brought up to people, both to men and to women, uh, immediately, all of us, I, I guarantee you, all of us here think of sexual purity. Sexual purity. Now, I want to say that sexual purity is important uh, and we all have to address it because we live in this post-modern, post-sexual revolution world uh, where sexual impurity is lauded and praised. And I would even argue, and you would probably agree with me, that it's worshipped. 
However, what Jesus is referring to here is more than just sexual purity. Not only, but more. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. He is trying to get at your heart here. Like what we've studied with the other blessings beforehand, what matters in the heart matters the most to Jesus. Before we talk about what purity means or what it means to be pure, we first have to study the heart. What is the heart? The Bible describes the heart as the control center of a man. That whatever rules the heart rules the person. Here you find the person's affections, what they care about. You have their motivations, what motivates them, what gets them up from bed and out the door every morning. The heart is like the engine of the car. It fuels, it pushes, it drives, it moves. As opposed to uh, the mind of the person what, that executes whatever the heart wishes. Whenever your heart is set onto something, your mind will execute, will figure out ways to achieve whatever your heart desires. That is the heart. If your heart gives into temptation and you desire to sin, your mind will concoct ways for you to carry out your sin and then concoct ways for you to cover up your sin from other people as much as possible. Uh, this is why it's so important when you, when you minister to other people, when you share Christ with other people, when you listen to them and bear their burdens, you have to get at the heart. You must get to the root of what that heart is desiring. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is to say, whatever is going on in here will come out of here. Inevitably. Inevitably. Scripture also says that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The heart is sick. So sick that scripture describes the heart as dead. We are dead men and women walking. And so far, Jesus has to say that to be blessed uh, is to be pure in heart is a contradiction in of itself because no heart has ever been or ever will be pure before God on its own. Purity then is the single-minded devotion to one thing. You are to be pure to your spouse. When you are wholly devoted to, P, uh, to him or her, uh, you are to be pure to your sports team, right? Like that's so many of you, I see Mike, Steelers fan, Steelers family, whatever, whatever sports fan you are. To be a pure fan is that you only root for them and you don't root for anyone else. Your team's not in the playoffs. Who cares about the playoffs? Purity is simply the state in which a person is devoted to one person, one thing, without any other contradicting devotions. So purity before God is to be wholly devoted to God. The first commandment out of the Ten Commandments is a commandment of purity. Thou shalt not have other gods before me. God demands that we worship him and worship him only. No other worship, no other idols. That's what it means to be pure in heart. Your heart, your affections, your desires, your motivations are for the Lord and for what he desires only. Therefore, when you are pure before God, you will desire 
and pursue sexual purity. Uh, you will desire and pursue a life of honesty, integrity. You will pursue diligence, joyful obedience, meekness, and humility because these are all things God requires of in his creation, from his creation. Uh, but as I talk about all these things, I know that we all know that that is simply not true for any one of you, any one of us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are so wicked and so sick that we cannot honestly appraise it. We cannot truly begin to comprehend how sinful and how wicked we are. We look at the news and we hear of murderers and rapists and felons and convicts and we think all the time, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, we think, I am not as bad as that person I see on the news. I would new, never do something as evil, as heinous as that person. Wrong. Wrong. You are as evil. You are as heinous. You, we all have the capacity for incredulous amounts of sin. We all have the potential to commit sin so vile to make it not only to the evening news, but to, into world history. You and I are in the same league and in the same boat of the same human nature as Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, or any other mass murderer in the world. Because... We all are, by nature and by choice, sinful, fallen human beings. And we all have hearts so desperately wicked that the only recourse for said wicked hearts is to judge that sin with death. And this is the bleak yet honest picture the Bible paints for us. Beloved, listen to me. Before you can understand or even begin to appreciate the magnitude of the love of Christ ultimately displayed on the cross, you must first come to grips with the fact that I am the worst sinner, period. I have no righteousness on my own. I need the righteousness of another. So in terms of this beatitude, I need another who is actually pure, who is actually clean, who is actually holy, to purge and to clean and to purify and ultimately to raise to life this sick, impure, unclean, dead heart of mine. Uh, the Puritan master John Owen, I commend him to you and I would encourage you to read his writing, uh, said this about the relationship be between our sin and Christ's love. He says, before Christ can become sweet, sin must become bitter. Before Christ can become sweet, sin must become bitter. Before coming to Christ, Paul says we are like ships tossed to and fro by every whim uh, and every need and every desire of our hearts. We did what we pleased and sought only to please ourselves. But what Jesus is saying here now, now that seeing to, to these Christians, these future Christians, now that you've tasted and seen the loveliness of Christ, for whom you claim him as your own, you must pursue purity. You must pursue a singular devotion to Christ because when you do, when you are pure in heart, he says you will see God.
you will see God. The verb to see is a simple term. It is to take in with your eyes, to perceive, uh, to look intently and clearly upon. I see every one of your lovely faces that have the camera on right now. That's why I asked you to draw on your cameras. Also, this verb, if you notice it, if you study it, study the Greek, um, it is not in the passive voice as all the other verbs are. All the other verbs say, for they shall be, for they shall be, for they shall be. Um, but this verb, for they shall see God, is in a voice that we don't have in the English. It's called the middle voice. And simply meaning, when, when, the, when the Greek is literally translated, uh, it's something along the lines of, they themselves shall see God. There's an emphasis on the person actually doing the action. They themselves will see God. And so what does this mean to us? This means that this seeing, this perceiving is not just some passive thing we will receive, but it is an active, intense privilege we are allowed to participate in. We are allowed to see God fully, completely, and finally. If you know your scripture, you know elsewhere in scripture it says that no one will ever see God and live. And so you're saying, that's a paradox. How can that be? Uh, Well, there's a simple and yet profound answer to that seemingly paradoxical question. How can we see God fully, intently, actively, as Jesus says here, without being absolutely destroyed by his glorious holiness. Moses was only able to catch a glimpse of God from his backside. Well, uh, I think the apostle John, the evangelist, helps us understand that very simply and concisely. He writes in John 1 verse 14, and the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus says, when you see me, it's as if you have seen the father. Uh, Brothers and sisters, uh, our God, this God who dwells in unapproachable light has come down and condescended to dwell among us. He has taken on flesh to conquer death sting so that those who would believe can not only be made pure, but also more so see him clearly and truly for what he is, a loving and kind God, a savior, a sinful man. If you believe in Christ, the promise that you will see Christ for all he is. Paul says that now, now in our fleshly bodies, we see as if we look in a mirror dimly, but one day we will see him face to face without anything to cloud our vision of him. We have, let me do the math, 15 more days of 2020, the year. And if you recall at the beginning of the year, January 1st, 2020, um, there's a lot of people on social media, on the news, whatever, um, people that proudly and ignorantly announced that this year, playing off the 
number 2020 would be a year of vision. Um, it would be a year in which they would see things around them clearly, that it would be a positive, uplifting year for them. And God, ironically enough, blindsided all of them, all of us, uh, with something we can never perceive, uh, probably to humble us and hopefully draw more people closer to him. Um, and 2020 is drawing to a close. And now no one is making any strange and pretentious prophecies in 2021. Um, but as we study and meditate on what it means to be pure in heart, I hope that you will see for yourself that when you pursue Christ wholeheartedly, when you pursue him with one devotion and not being distracted by others, other things and sins and worldly pursuits, you will see, or you will better yet, you will behold is the best term. You will behold him clearly, more clearly. The more you pursue him in purity, the more clearer he'll be. The more you engage in sin and worldly pursuits, the dimmer he'll be. And for those of you who persevere, who run the race to the end, who, like Paul, has finished the good fight, uh, Christ will be that crown of glory in which you will see for all he is waiting for you at the end of the finish line. And you will see him and you will know him like you've never known before. And he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant or good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of of your master. Uh, that is the posture of purity. Moving on, our second posture is the posture of peacemaking. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. We now move to the concept of peacemaking. And I'm not sure how many of you have even heard of what peacemaking is. Uh, but again, God is always our starting point. God is the great peacemaker. He is the great reconciler. He is the pursuer of peace as he is the prince of peace. And he is also called what, again, our Puritan brethren like to call him the great hound of heaven. When God has set his love and affection on you in eternity past, he has determined for himself to pursue you like a hound pursues a coon. I'm sure many of the guys here have hunted before and understand when you have a hunting dog and the hunt the dog picks up on the scent, uh, that dog will track that animal down until he is that animal is found. Um, where the red fern grows is one of my all time favorite childhood novels. It is excellent. It's a must-read if you haven't read it. I see Mike Chaknish nodding his head. Um, peacemaking is like these hounds. Uh, peacemaking, as it originates from God, is the chief character trait of the children of God. Uh, Paul pleads on behalf of the churches to be reconciled to God. The ministry we have as new believers in Christ is what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation, or in other terms, peacemaking. Peacemaking. Chiefly between God and man, but also subsequently between man and other men. I'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll just look at a couple of verses, verses 17 through 21. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not, count, not counting their trespasses against him. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see how Paul connects the once animosity we had with God to the ministry of Christ? That through Christ Jesus, God is reconciling disobedient, rebellious haters of God so that they may become lovers of God. That is what is happening. That is the picture that peacemaking paints. Our previous sinful position with God can be thought of as a war, wartime. Christians were once at war with God. And when you're on the opposite side of God, you are guaranteed to lose. You're 100% guaranteed for total destruction. However, God in his holy love made the first move to make peace. In our 100% guaranteed destruction position, we as rebels refuse to concede. But God made a way to mediate between these rebel sinners and himself. He drafted the peace treaty and he offers it freely for us to accept through the gospel, through Christ. Christ has formed a bridge in which man can cross and meet God no longer in rebellious animosity, but in loving familial peace. And so through this beatitude, the concept of peacemaking is so closely related to the doctrine of adoption. Through the blood of Christ, rebel sinners who were alienated from God, both by choice and by nature, are now not only reconciled to God, made to be on good terms with God, But also God has adopted these sinners, us, into his family in which we are called sons and daughters. This beatitude is describing the simple yet profound truth that results when one believes in the gospel. The first peacemaker, God, has first made peace with man so that man now may be called sons of God, coming from the lineage of God. Therefore, when you make peace with other people, with other brothers and sisters, you're demonstrating the inherent sonship you have with God. Our peacemaking with others do not earn our sonship. We've covered that in other Beatitudes. This isn't about working to earn your salvation. But like the other Beatitudes before it, it demonstrates our sonship. It exemplifies the reality that you are truly a son of God. If you do not make peace with others, especially with other believers, if you hold grudges, if you hold animosity towards other believers, be warned that that might be a sign that you might may not be truly a son or daughter of God in the first place. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is peacemaking? Um, there's a man, a pastor, a minister named Ken Sandy. 
He is an ex-mechanical engineer, and now he is a pastor and a leader of Biblical Conflict Resolution Ministries out in Montana. And he wrote an incredibly helpful book on this topic. And I would argue that the topic of conflict resolution and biblical peacemaking is integral not only to you personally as a believer, but more importantly, I would argue that is essential, vital uh, for your life as a believer in the life of the local church. And so I commend to you his book, Peacemaker, Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Um, But let me give you, for the sake of our sermon, uh, we're not going to go over the whole book, but let me give you just the Sparks Notes version because I know high schoolers love Spark Notes because they don't read their English books. How do we go about peacemaking? All of you have and will be in conflict with another person. That is 100% guaranteed. That is the nature of relationships with sinful people. You will be in conflict with your parents. You will be in conflict with your siblings, with your friends, with other members of the church. I'm confident that many of you, even today, have been in conflict with one of these peoples. Uh, But every time you enter conflict with another person, especially with another Christian, you are called, you are demanded to resolve the conflict and make peace. Because this peacemaking, as we already mentioned, demonstrates your sonship, demonstrates your Christianness, demonstrates your allegiance with Christ. And so Sandy helps walk through peacemaking in just four easy steps. Easy! Uh, And they can be summarized in four G's. And the first G is this. Glorify God. Glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Before you can reconcile with another brother or sister in Christ, you first must be in the right head and heart space with God. You must ensure that in your thoughts, in your intentions, and in your actions, you are glorifying God. You are glorifying God in your words. You are glorifying God in your attitude, which in this case should be, must be an attitude of humility. You're glorifying God with what you are about to do which in this case is to make peace. Um, the The glory of God is the chief end of man. That is our chief purpose. That is our final purpose. Therefore, that must be your attitude when you approach someone to resolve an issue with them. You must be thinking, I must make peace with my brother or with my sister because I want to ultimately glorify God. That must be your mindset in everything, and especially that must be your mindset in peacemaking. And so this brings us to our second step. Second G. Get the log out of your own eye. Get the log out of your own eye. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. We'll cover this in a later sermon because this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. But for our intents and purposes for peacemaking, the second step after reorienting yourself to glorify God is to recognize that in every conflict, every conflict, you in some way, shape or form contributed to that conflict. That is why Jesus will later say before we address the sin of our brother, we must first address the sin in ourselves. 
Even if you have 1% of the guilt, you must first humbly address your sin before your brother and ask for forgiveness before you address the sins of the other person. Remember to do this in humility. You're recognizing you're genuinely at fault as much, if not more so, than your brother. When you approach them with humility, this way you will more likely win your brother and make peace. Understand that you have a fault. You have a role. It might have been your attitude. It might have been a stray word. It might have been anything. But recognize that you contributed to that. Third, third G, third step, is gently restore. Gently restore. Matthew 18, verse 15. This is the step where you seek to restore your brother, brother and try to win them back. Either you ask for, for their forgiveness or in the most humble way possible, vice versa. Or both. The goal of any conflict resolution, any peacemaking is to the re- restore the relationship. Your goal is to mutually recognize each other's sins and forgive each other. Church discipline then, side tangent, is instituted by Jesus here to not only uh, remove sinners from the congregation, uh, but more importantly, uh, it would be for the restitution of that sinner. If we're all about just removing sinners because they have sinned, uh, all of us would be put out of the church. And so your goal in this step, your goal in peacemaking is to win your brother over with all humility, with all gentleness, and with all meekness. That is your goal here. And lastly, the fourth step, the fourth G is go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. Matthew 5 verse 24. We'll look at this real shortly. We'll get to this passage soon. But the point Jesus' illustration here is to restore one another, to peacemake quickly so that your worship your service, your lives would not be hindered. When you are in conflict with another person, your entire person becomes bothered. How many of you have been in conflict with someone just to feel the awkwardness, uh, that air of uncomfort with that other person, just because you know that they know that you know that you guys are in conflict? You all know. Um, Address the issue quickly. Make peace quickly so that your worship, your fellowship would not be hindered. The issue of peace within the church is a big deal for Jesus. For him to have a divided body, a divided bride, a disunified church is, to kin- is akin to having himself, Christ himself, divided. And that is why when you read later in the epistles, The apostles, Paul, John, Peter, all of them are so concerned with church unity. If we are called sons of God, we all should and must be peacemakers. Because our Father and our Savior was a peacemaker. All these Beatitudes demonstrate first the character of Jesus before describing the character of the Christian. And so now, now we've reached the last Beatitude. The climax, uh, the apex of the Beatitudes. And I think it is most fitting as the climax, as the final character trait of Jesus, that we talk about persecution. The posture of 
persecution. We'll take this section in two parts. First, for the rest of this sermon and the next time we meet, uh, because Jesus repeats or reiterates himself twice. He says essentially the same thing, but the second time with a little bit more depth. But I want you to first notice that this word persecution means to be put to flight, um, to cause someone or something to flee, uh, to chase down or to chase after. We can be persecuted for a variety of reasons. Positively, as I mentioned before, uh, with where the red fern grows and the great hound of heaven, uh, Jesus persecuted us. He chased us down and he saved us. That's, that's a positive spin on a commonly negative term. When the love of Christ is set upon the sinner, it will pursue and it will persecute until the sinner is brought into union with Christ. However, what Jesus is saying here is that we are persecuted or blessed is the one who is persecuted for the sake of righteousness. When Christ pursues us, it is for the sake of love, the sake of his glory. It is for the sake of our salvation and our rescue. But what Jesus is talking about here is for the sake of righteousness. And this is the culmination of the Beatitudes. As we stepped step by step, Beatitude after Beatitude, uh, we realize that this is ultimately all of these things, the pursuit of of righteousness, righteous, God-prescribed living. We are poor in spirit. We recognize we can never be righteous on our own, but rather we mourn over our sin. We are meek when it comes to our position because we understand that it's a position that we never earned. We hunger and thirst for that external righteousness outside of ourselves. We are merciful, merciful because we received righteousness out of the mercy of God rather than merit. We're pure because we seek to be righteous now before the Holy One who counted us as righteous. We make peace with others as the righteousness of Christ made peace between us and God. And finally, because of this righteousness, Christ's righteousness will be persecuted for it. Because Christ in like manner was persecuted for His righteousness. He was perfect under the law. He was morally blameless. He was the pure lamb of God who was put through the slaughter. He was given a mock trial and mocked by those who tried him. He hung on the tree, bore the wrath, endured the shame, all for the sake of righteousness. Because it was right for God to punish him. It was right that he would take our place and be the substitution for sin's curse. And through his life, death, and burial, Christ himself was proven right because he rose again, defeating sin, defeating death. Christ's righteousness is what you long for and what you need. And for some, Christ's righteousness is what will get you killed. This is the sober reality of Christianity. 
that as we walk in the same path of obedience as Christ did, for some of us, it will cost us our lives. As Christ said before, to come to him, you must first count the cost. It will cost you everything. But in turn, you will gain everything. Jesus brings us to the apex of the Beatitudes to reiterate the same promise. Just as the poor in spirit, when we first started out, will receive the kingdom of heaven. Those who will be persecuted, who are persecuted for righteousness sake, will gain the kingdom of heaven. It will cost you everything to receive Christ. But in return, when you gain Christ, you will gain everything. The kingdom of heaven opens up to you. My favorite verse of all time. Paul counted all things as rubbish in comparison to knowing and gaining Christ. Is that your attitude? Is that your posture towards Christ? Have you forsaken all so that you may gain Christ? Look at me. Philippians chapter 3. And, and we'll close with this. Philippians chapter 3. Verses 8 through 10. Backtrack one verse, starting at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There are no two ways about it. Christ is not here to coddle you and tell you that if you believe in him, you'll, you'll have an easy life. You'll have a good paying job. You have a beautiful spouse and beautiful children and, and a lovely home. He's not here to say that. But rather, he will hold you accountable for what you know and what you've come to know and who you've come to know and who you've come to believe in. At the end of time, you will stand before God and he will ask you, what have you done with my son, Jesus? And either you will respond with an answer of love and affection that you fully and completely devoted your life to his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe not in a perfect way, um, but it will be a way that slowly grew and blossomed and bore fruit. Or, or, you'll be like those who say, Lord, Lord, but never knew him in the first place. And in response, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you either. We will get to that passage too. But understand that at this final beatitude, Jesus is reminding us that following him has a cost. Everyone has a price they alone must pay. 
But understand when you pursue true righteousness, when you pursue this righteousness that can never come from yourself, you'll be hounded for it. You'll be persecuted for it. And in return, you'll be welcomed by Jesus for it. Christians who live in places not named America experience genuine death resulting persecution for their faith, for their love of Jesus. And they gladly give up their lives for him. Do you see your life in the same way? C.T. Studd helpfully reminds us that we have one life. You have one life to live. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what done for Christ shall last. Do you see your life given to Christ this way? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we have come to treasure and know you because you have paid it all for us. And Lord, I know that when it comes to persecution and living a life that is wholly devoted to you, uh, it is a difficult truth, a difficult pill to swallow. But with all these other blessings, all these other beatitudes, may it be more and more true for us every every single day that we've come to treasure purity, we've come to treasure peacemaking, and we love and we come to treasure the persecution that comes from living a righteous life for you. And so God, help us to contend earnestly for the truth. Help us to live gospel-centered lives and preach the gospel. May the gospel be ever-present on our lips. And Lord, we know that whatever may come, uh, you still hold us fast. And so we bank on that as we eagerly wait your return or we be ushered to glory. Help us to see Christ better, we pray. Amen. All right, everybody. Uh, that is...